Thank you, Sherry. Morning, folks. A uh, special welcome if you're uh, new or visiting today. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Actually, I think it's worthwhile just mentioning up front how weird it feels to come to church and actually not sing, just not to have a little bit of a humdrum, a little bit of a chance to toe-tap before we start. And look, let me encourage you. In fact, it's something that we're going to talk about later on. It may feel like it's flat, but actually what's doing here, what we are doing here is profitable, worthwhile and good because what we are on about when we come to church is to sit under God's Word. So whether we get to sing or, 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 tap, or, or tap our toes beforehand or afterwards, though it may affect my feeling, may, though it may affect my mood, it does not make what we are doing here less profitable, right and pleasing to God. I want to encourage you with that, that while we may be small in number today, while we may be not um, whiz-banged up by the, the music, um, what we're doing here is profoundly good and we ought to ask God to help us in it. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we do pray, as we pray every week, that as we come to your word, it might be according to your word that we are able to test everything, to hold on to what is true and good, and to reject all that is evil and false. And may our time this morning be pleasing to you and profitable to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, we are the last of the... Oh, by the way, Youth Church, good news for you guys. You get to stay in today. Hooray! Look at them all cheering. Unbelievable. Uh, we are in the last in our series on, uh, on 1 Thessalonians, a series we've titled Transformation. It really has been about how the gospel transforms everything in life. Over the last sort of five or six weeks, uh, Paul, we've heard him address topics of, well, how do you worship in chapter 1? He's talking about how the gospel transforms the way we understand authority in chapter 2, even hardships in chapter 3. We've looked at how the gospel even transforms the most, most intimate, personal, nitty-gritty aspects of life. The way we think and act in regards to sexuality, uh, ambition in work, grief in death, chapter 4. And even at the start of this chapter, we looked last week at how it even changes the way that you prepare for the end of the world. I mean, this is, this is massive stuff. And as our series image suggests, as it should be on the screen there, it's like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Genuine gospel transformation is dramatic, unmistakable and irreversible. Life cannot and is not the same afterwards and nor would you want it to be. Because what we see in the gospel of Christ, we find actually the bedrock foundation. In fact, I want to say the only foundation for a life that is now pleasing to God a life that actually makes sense in the present and a life that has real and lasting hope for all eternity because it is anchored in what Christ has done for us. And, and as we've heard Paul address the people in Thessalonica, I hope you realise something else. I hope you realise that he's been addressing us too. Why do I say that? Because well, one of the key ideas that Paul repeats throughout this letter is that he reminds them the gospel of Jesus is not Paul's message first and foremost. It's not something that Paul cooked up by his own assessment or his own wisdom on life. In fact, as he suggested in, in chapter 2, verse 13, the gospel is not the words of men, but the word of God. And Paul reminds him that he brought this gospel message and the instructions and the implications that flow on from this by the authority of the Lord Jesus himself, chapter 4, verse 2. And so therefore, he says in 4 verse 8, that anyone who rejects the instructions does not reject man, but God who gives the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is serious business. 
This is serious business that Paul is pointing out here. And just in case, just in case anyone is tempted out there to accept that this is God's authority of words, but then only see it as binding to the Thessalonians in the first century, we then read at the very end of his letter, Paul's intention for this to be understood and followed by all believers. Have a look at it there in your Bibles in the passage, 5 verse 27. He says, Paul says, I charge you, that's very strong language, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read out to all the brothers and sisters. What's more, we have evidence to suggest that from the very earliest times of the early church, this is exactly what happened. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians has constantly been used and taught by Christians through the ages as the authoritative word of God. In other words, when Paul was addressing those in Thessalonica about the gospel transformation, he was addressing us too. God's authoritative instructions on these issues, the gospel-powered transformation to understand and apply, it is as relevant and pressing for us today as it was to those who first heard it. Now, if you've missed anything of our sermon series along the way, please download our, our WEC podcast on oh, is it Spotify and Apple. I don't know how to do these things. Find someone who does. It's all there, though. Is it there or what? Yeah, it's all there. Good. Get on them and download them by all means. But as we wind up 1 Thessalonians, what is Paul's instructions, his parting instructions to the Thessalonians and then vicariously to us? What's the final feature of this gospel transformation that Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is reinforcing as he rounds out his letter? I think, actually, I really like the way that Chris did the kids' spot then, because I think it's a little bit difficult to spot at first. It feels like a real, well, it feels an eclectic mix of rather random sort of instructions at one level. It's a bit like Paul's just firing off everything else he can think of before he flicks the light off and heads to bed for the night. But I think it's a little bit more deliberate than that. In fact, I'm convinced that there's a way to hold this section together with a little bit more cohesiveness than it first looks. I think Paul is going on or giving final instructions to show how the gospel ought change our responses in life. Transform your response to people and circumstances of life generally, yes, but also some particular people and circumstances specifically that he cares to mention is important. Now, because of the time... And because I'm long-winded, let's be honest, I'm only going to focus on a couple of these examples from the text. But the first example is all about how you respond to people in relationships in the church gathering. And he starts first with leaders. Now, we've mentioned this in the previous weeks. Um, Leadership is, well, it's as essential and unavoidable in a church family as it is in any other social setting. I mean, think about that for a minute. It doesn't matter where you go from an army to an orchestra, Leadership with some form of authority is necessary. And, and I say this is because I think that the, the idea that is championed in our day and age is the, the idea of the leaderless group. The reality of a leaderless group is a, is a unicorn. It's a fanciful notion that people can imagine in theory but never find in practice. Because in every group scenario, someone will naturally and necessarily assume or be assumed upon to form or provide some form of structure like accountability and direction for the group. Now, that doesn't have to be a formal leadership. It doesn't have to be voted on leadership. It's there by nature, parents to children, you realise. It's there by design in business and sporting teams. That's why we've got coaches and bosses and managers. And it appears by necessity in church as in any other sort of publicly gathered group, whether it's a study group, whether it's a friendship group, whether it's a protest group. 
As soon as you've got a gathering of people, you'll find people either naturally becoming the influencers, influencers rather, or the influenced. Leadership happens, right? And it's no different in a church setting. In fact, Jesus, the chief shepherd, the leader of his people, has delegated responsibility for leadership to his under-shepherds. He has delegated responsibility to people to care for his own people, his flock. In fact, look at how Paul puts it there in verse 12 and 13 of our chapter today. If you haven't got a Bible, by the way, grab one at the back and write your name in it. It's yours. Uh, Verses 12 and 13, he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, don't misunderstand what, this, what he's getting at here. Paul is not suddenly sort of establishing a two-tiered system of Christianity. Top tiers are pastors and teachers. Bottom tier, everyone else, the plebs. That's not what he's doing here. Tempting as it, though, it may be. Okay. No, it's not like that at all. When he uses the phrase there, over you in the Lord, it's not a statement of superior versus inferior. It's a statement of responsibility. It's a statement of great weight for anyone who would assume a leadership responsibility in a church family. Because although it is true that all of us are responsible to each other in Christ, we are all to have a part to play in the building up of each other as Christian brothers and sisters. We'll see more on that in a minute. But some of us have a responsibility for others in Christ. Again, parents, feel the weight of that for your children. Bosses, feel the weight of that for your workers. But here, Paul is speaking specifically about pastors and elders, people who bear responsibility for others in Christ. As those who bear the burden and the privilege of shepherding God's people, as men who will one day, well, um, the writer of the Hebrews puts it this way, uh, Hebrews 13, 17, who will one day give an account to God. The privilege and the burden of shepherding God's people whose work will be tested by fire, Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.13. This is serious business. And so what's Paul's instruction to the, to the church uh, of the Thessalonians? How ought the gospel transform their response to their leaders? We see it there. Respect them, verse 12, hold them in high regard. Now, as a church leader, I'd like to say I'm very tempted to tee off on a verse like this. And let you know from now on how you could uh, use these verses to make sure that I feel honoured and held in high regard. You know, kind of like um, a rider list for a travelling celebrity or a pop star, you know the ones? I will now require a dozen long stand roses, a Persian rug, uh, three T-bone steaks, six bottles of sparkling, six bottles of stilled water, all chilled, and a uh, a box of fine lint chocolates backstage each week before I preach. Thank you. That's how you can communicate your respect and regard for me from this point forward. That, no. no. <laughs> Tempting as it may be. It's, I don't even think I could put three T-bones away before a sermon. I don't know, I could give it a whirl. <clears throat> it's tempting, but it's not even close to what Paul's talking about here, is it? So why is Paul, why is it that he feels necessary to remind the Thessalonians to respect and hold in high regard those who are responsible for spiritual leadership in the church? You know, always when you see an instruction given in the Bible, it's often because the opposite is the temptation. What I mean by that is, I think there's obviously here a temptation not to respect or regard leaders. And I think that's got to do precisely with part of the nature of their task. Have a look at it there in the verse. What is part of their responsibility in verse 12? 
who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you. Now, admonishment, admonishing, it's not a word we hear very often these days, but it's important that we understand it here because it is the role of under-shepherds as leaders. It's a, a part of their role is to admonish the flock. That literally means to warn or to instruct in accordance with God's word. It's a heavy task. And speaking from experience for a minute, that, always, that isn't always easy to do. It isn't often fun to do. It's very seldom fun to do, and sometimes it's not even received well. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's easy enough to sort of uh, generally do this from the pulpit, to sort of take a passage and show where the passage very clearly warns or corrects or encourages. That's kind of easy, straightforward, non-personal. I can get up here and say all sorts of things, and because I'm saying no one in particular, I don't feel the relational awkwardness, and neither do you. But to sit eyeball to eyeball with someone? To sit eyeball to eyeball with someone who needs to be warned or corrected or instructed on some personal spiritual issue from God's word? That's difficult. That's awkward. That's uncomfortable at times, but ultimately it's the most loving and appropriate thing to do to bring God's word to bear on each other's life and to respect and recognize and allow yourself to be addressed by God's word whether in rebuke or in correction or in warning or instruction, so long as it's God's word that is in authority, it's entirely appropriate, necessary and good. But it's tempting to disregard, isn't it? It's tempting to try to find a way to fob off admonishment when you get it, when you don't want it. It's tempting to want to make out that it's some sort of personality clash motivated by a misunderstanding or motivated poor treatment when you're on the receiving end of some sort of warning or correction from someone in authority over you. And yet Paul is saying that ought not be your response. Instead, hold it in high regard. Now, I don't make this point here primarily for my own sake, though it's for my sake also, but I make it here preemptively as people who are making plans to employ more pastoral staff here at WEC. And I make this uh, a preemptive point here. It's important for us to note that the respect and regard for leaders in the church does not come by force of personality or likability per se. Paul doesn't say, hold these leaders in high regard because you've known them for a long time already or because you've had a coffee at their house. No, he says, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. In other words, whoever it is that we get to minister among us here at WEC in the future, we ought be expecting... I want to say encouraging them that they would come in and on the first day, if admonishment is in order, according to God's word to us, we will be preparing to honour, respect and heed it. Whatever shape or form it takes, all warning and encouragement as necessary, assuming that it is generated by and grounded in God's own authority from the Bible. And just by way of further implication, just to tease us out a little bit more, have you been praying about this aspect for our church already? Have you been praying about the leadership transitions we'll be facing in six months' time? I, I really hope so. I mean, I have been. I find myself personally in the situation where I might find myself under a new senior pastor. And I'm hyper aware of my need to keep my own pride in check. To, to, to respect and honour the way that God will use whoever comes next including the way that, they, that God may use that person to mould and sharpen and even admonish me. That is necessary, right, and, and I ought to be expecting it, and you should too. So friends, if you haven't yet been praying about this for our church, start now. 
Be ready to transform your response where necessary. It is that important. Now that's the first point that Paul mentions here, your response to leaders. But there's a couple of other people categories in the church that he mentions here that we need to see, that we need to take in. And as he moves on from how we ought respond to leaders, he now issues three instructions about how to respond to others in church. Look it up there in verse 14. He says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak. Notice there there's three verbs or three instructions, warn, encourage, help, and three groups of people. Idle and disruptive is one, disheartened is another, and weak. And I'm not going to deal with all these, but a couple of small translational issues as we begin to look at the first group here. That word that's translated warn here, warn those who are idle and disruptive, that's the exact same word as admonish a couple of verses up. Now, I think it's important to notice that because it means that the job of admonishing, of warning and instructing or correcting, it's not just the job of the church leadership. Yes, leaders have a a greater or a specific responsibility for it in their role, but not to the exclusion of others being ready and willing to admonish or warn or instruct a brother or sister in Christ. And the group who needs admonishing here, it's translated in the new ANIV as idle and disruptive. It's a translation from a single Greek word which actually refers to someone going their own way. It's someone marching to the beat of their own drum. I mean, have you ever watched a march-out parade of soldiers or police officers? How they march in formation, perfect lines, perfectly in unison, in step. Have you ever seen someone get even just half a step out of sync? (laughs) How obvious does it stick out for one? And then how real is the potential for this to throw off the whole row? I mean, it's huge. And in that moment, it requires someone close by them to admonish them, to correct them, to instruct them quickly, get back in step. This is important. It's a sort of image that Paul is using here. Admonish those who are going their own way. Warn them, correct them, instruct them, bring them back. As I said, practically speaking, if you notice someone idle in their Christian walk, someone who is out of step, whether that's by ignorance or defiance, where their behaviour doesn't match their stated belief, where their actions don't match the words, and their professed obedience to Christ as King either lacks evidence generally or there is specific evidence to the contrary, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? Get on the phone and call Pete or I, because we're the pastors here. I mean, I sincerely hope that's not your first instinct. Though it might be appropriate in some senses, in some cases, but generally speaking, God's word here is telling you the responsibility is yours. It's ours collectively, warn and admonish those who are out of step, those who are going their own way. Not because you're a nitpicker or a busybody, but in love. Now, happily, I can say that I am aware of cases like this in our church where brothers and sisters actually love each other enough to have these kinds of robust discussions. That is the mark of a healthy, good, family-oriented church, where people love each other enough to have what I call robust discussion, where sin is being confronted, where expectations are not being met, 
It's often at great risk to the relationship, but it's worth doing because A, it actually is caring and loving, and B, it actually God calls us to do it in his word. I mean, it kind of reminds me of uh, of Proverbs 27.6. I didn't put it up on the screen. You can jot it down. It says, The wounds from a friend are are to be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The wounds of a friend are to be trusted. Friends, we need to remember this the next time you see a Christian brother or sister who needs to be admonished, who needs to be warned or corrected or encouraged in some direct fashion. Perhaps more importantly, we need to remember this next time a Christian or brother, a Christian brother or sister admonishes you. The wounds of a friend are to be trusted, but an enemy might just multiply kisses. That's the first group of, 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 of other people. The second group and the second response in verse 14 that I think is worthwhile addressing here specifically this morning is an instruction to encourage the disheartened. Again, this is the responsibility of everybody, the whole family of God, the entire body of Christ. God is calling us to notice those who are struggling with discouragement, those who are disheartened in their Christian walk, and not just notice them but step into the fray with them. And not to offer empty platitudes of, she'll be right, I'm sure things will get better. You, you know that sort of thing. It's, it's tempting in that moment to want to say something that's uplifting and positive, uh, and positive that has actually absolutely no basis. But that's not what we're called to do here. In fact, notice and, and step in, but with genuine hope and encouragement that only comes from knowing God and being known by God through Jesus. What does it look like in practice? It means see, sitting with those who are struggling. It means hearing and acknowledging the feelings of discouragement. Acknowledging not necessarily to affirm or confirm that's the right thing, but helping to bring the objective truth of God's word to bear on and over the subjective feeling. Let me explain that a little bit further. Let me join the dots. How many of you here, how many of us here, have felt discouraged or disheartened in our faith when either sin seems to be winning where circumstances are pretty ordinary or where God just feels somehow distant and aloof. Have you ever had that experience or that feeling before? Have you ever sat with someone who's expressed something of this nature? I mean, it's a dark, lonely, disheartening place to be. How do you encourage the disheartened in this example? Well, it's not by ignoring or downplaying the feeling, but by bringing the objective truth of God's word to bear on that feeling. To allow the light of the gospel to shine on that feeling so it might be better understood, redirected, even replaced by the truth revealed in God's word. Because the simple truth is this, folks. Right feelings can only ever be based on right thoughts. Now, do you know what I mean by that? Let me say that again. Right feelings about yourself or about God can only ever be based on right thoughts about yourself or God. In other words, when you're sitting with the disheartened, helping them to understand and articulate the feeling and then helping them to assess that feeling in the light of God's truth. You feel like God is distant. You feel like sin is winning. You feel like the circumstances are hopeless. I know that feeling. I've got no doubt that everyone else here, or at least most of us here, have had some at least small snippets of that feeling. But what's the truth of the situation? How does God's word address that feeling? What is the settled reality of those who are in Christ? 
You see, the truth of the gospel means that if you're trusting in Jesus, if God has gifted you faith and repentance by his spirit to turn away from sin and to rely solely on his grace and mercy, then your sin has been dealt with. Payment and satisfaction has been made in full. Peace and forgiveness with God is the objective, present, ongoing reality that you can rest in. Because it's not anchored in you, it's anchored in Christ and in what he's done on your behalf. It doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin anymore. In fact, it means you must keep struggling against sin. It doesn't mean that you'll feel on top of the world every day in your life. No, natural peaks and troughs of human emotions remain. But whether you're at the peak or at the trough, if Christ is yours and you are Christ's, then God does not see or treat you for your sinful imperfection, no matter how yo-yoing it looks, if you're in Christ, then God sees and treats you for Christ's perfection. For this is the settled reality achieved by Jesus when he died in the place of sinners. You see, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. So though you and I might at times feel nearer or further away from God at different times in life, at different seasons in life, that may be the feeling But the objective truth is much more settled. If you are in Christ, you, you cannot get nearer to God than in Christ. That ought be of enormous encouragement to the disheartened, shouldn't it? How many of us need to hear that? How many of us need to share that? How many of us need to be reminded of that daily almost? If I am in Christ... God sees and treats me for Christ's righteousness, for his perfection, not my own stupid, sinful yo-yoing. That is a magnificent encouragement. The feeling remains. The reality is settled in Christ. Now, as usual, I'm fast running out of time. And so while I haven't got the time to sort of fully unpack all the other instructions of the gospel transformed responses that Paul is looking for here, I want to sort of look and show you just how countercultural they are by definition as we skim across the top of them. Look at it there in verses 14 and 15. What are the other instructions he gives? Help the weak. So it doesn't go much with the old survival of the fittest. Be patient with everyone. Don't pack, pay back wrong for wrong. Rejecting revenge. Now, I found it really interesting during the week. I actually heard there are actually courses offered in how to perfect, plan and perfect the perfect revenge. This is true. And I don't just mean sort of WikiHow pages, although I found that that's a real thing. WikiHow, how to get revenge. I've, whoa! But there are people who have actually, over the course of time, tried to make a career out of helping others get revenge. I read a story, and I can't even remember his name now, a chap in New York, bullied as a, as a teenager, who set up a company to help teach a course in getting revenge, and for an extra one-off fee of $75, he would actually give you personal, upfront, consultative advice on how to plan your perfect revenge. Wow! And it can feel like that sometimes, but it's a completely odds with the gospel transformation. We must no longer be people playing tit for tat. Moving on then from verse 16, general instructions for responses in all manner of circumstances. Rejoice, pray, give thanks in all circumstances, even for fleas. I mean, I read that story when Luke mentioned it with Corey Ten Boom. The fact that it was the fleas that kept the, soul, or the guards out 
that they actually had been praying, thanks God for the fleas. How many people, I wonder, got to sit around God's word, got to hear the the saving message of Christ in those moments because of the cover of the fleas? It's not something naturally you would thank God for, yet here we hear, here we hear, rejoice, pray, give thanks in all circumstances. How non-obvious are those notions to the natural world, and yet now how possible are they, how necessary are they as responses through gospel transformation in Christ. Verse 19, skimming across, don't quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecy with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I mean, there's a standalone sermon in itself right there. But what a wonderful catch-all principle for life. Test everything. Implied here is the idea that God's word, God's inspired word, revealed and illuminated by the Holy Spirit, is the testing ground or the measuring tape to set against all manner of prophecy, all manner of speech, all manner of faith. Test everything. And if it doesn't measure up, drop it like it's hot. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Friends, it's why we need to know God's word so well personally. Because it is the measuring tape by which I take and measure everything else about matters of life and faith. But as we wind up, I just want to draw your attention again to something else that Paul has done consistently through this letter to the the Thessalonians. Again, obviously, Paul writes this letter to them and vicariously to us in itself as a word of admonishment. You realize that? He's written this to warn and instruct them and us on the implications for godly living as necessitated by gospel transformation. And he expects us to respond with obedience in action. You realize that, don't you? I mean, that's right and proper and good and you, leave not, you ought not leave here thinking anything else. But even as he presses upon them and us the need for action, look at where he places his ultimate confidence for this kind of gospel transformation required. What you find is it's not ultimately in the faithfulness of the individuals to God, but in the faithfulness of God to individuals. Let me say that again, because this is the ultimate place where the secured hope of gospel transformation is It's not ultimately in your faithfulness to God, but in God's faithfulness to you. Have a look at it there in verse 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He will do it. Friends, this is the third time in this short letter that Paul has stopped to remind us of our hopeful gospel transformation, of necessarily living a life pleasing to God. He did it at the beginning of chapter 1. He did it at the end of chapter 3. He now does it as he signs up in chapter 5. And the reminder and the reassurance is that God is at work in his people. As we strive for obedience, even as we suffer setbacks and failures, it is God who is faithful to his people working in us to will and act in order to fulfill his good purposes. So friends, as we finish, let me ask you, has the gospel transformed your natural responses in life? Has it transformed your response to people and circumstances, away from disrespect, away from impatience, away from revenge, rather toward the pursuit of peace, toward the the, the, the cultivation of kindness, 
Friends, are you keeping in step with the Holy Spirit? Testing the thoughts, the words, the actions of yourself and others who would proclaim to speak from his space. Testing in them and weighing them against God's word. Holding to what is true. Avoiding evil contradictions. And admonishing each other in love. There's some real and important questions to ponder, folks. They're things that we ought be reflecting on. In fact, what we're going to do now, we are going to spend some time reflecting on these things. We're going to spend some time reflecting on these things because we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together.